Hello, hello, welcome to the Drum the Stem podcast. The real star of today's episode is Brian Wu, who can be easily titled the Luke Skywalker of science today. Don't get me wrong, the research topic we're going to cover is not science fiction, but facts people. He discovered nine giant planets, one brown dwarf, two binary stars, as well as the first ever low-mass circumbinary planet using radio velocity spectrographs. This year, at the world's largest scientific championship, Intel ISAF, he won the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's top award of $5,000. He is not only an exoplanet researcher at the University of Florida, but a TEDx speaker, editor and co-founder of an aviation news site, an athlete, and someone who's got some moves. Hi, Brian. It's great to have you here. Well, hello. Uh, um, I'm really excited to be here today, and thank you so much for having me. For sure, you are going to be such an interesting guest to have you here, and I think we're going to have a great talk today. Actually, I wanted to start out the podcast because I remember you at the science fair. I I first saw you at the speakers event when Dathan Gallish from the University of Arizona shared about exploring asteroid Bennu. Oh, yeah. That was really an amazing experience, you know, to be able, um, OSIRIS-REx, which is the asteroid mission half a kilogram of rocks and dust back to Earth. And OSIRIS-REx has been a really special mission to me because my name is actually engraved on a plaque on that spacecraft. And to be able to meet one of the mission's um, primary scientists is just um, truly amazing to see what kind of science like they can actually get from this, you know? Yes, definitely. I can believe you. And I've seen that undeniable excitement and passion about you because I think you are excited about everything space-related. Right? That's true. ISAF is a great place to, to have those conversations and to meet those people you, you look up to. It is. Yeah, so first you're going to date back in time because I'm curious how it all started. When did you first become interested in the wonders outside of our planet? <laughs> well, um, that's in order to answer that, we're going to have to really go back um, to... Um, my personal beginnings and to a point where I didn't even know how to speak. So um, I grew up in Connecticut, so that's in the northeastern United States. And um, personally, when I was little, um, I would just cry a lot. I I mean, that's something all babies do. (laughs) But whenever my mom would bring me over to the window and point towards the stars, and that's really where my inspiration took off. I could see like those twinkling dots in the night sky. For some reason, they just captivated me. Yes, yeah, so it all can be traced back to when you were really young. And I know that you, when you started crying, your mom had that special trick to calm you. That's true. You know, the most common first words of a child usually include dada or mama, but that wasn't quite the case in your situation. What was yours? <laughs> It, it really was not. My first word that I remember um, was Mars. And the reason was because when I was little, one of my favorite things to play with was like this puzzle consisting of, um, um, at that time, we had nine planets, so Pluto was actually on the puzzle. I, I would just spend a lot of time playing with that puzzle when I was younger, and I would just remember taking out Mars, putting it back in, taking out Mars, putting it back in, eventually. Um, that just became my first word. And it's quite a coincidence because Mars is actually one of the most interesting worlds in our solar system. A lot of companies and agencies, such 
SpaceX and NASA have really considered Mars as a potential colony for humans. Um, they want to terraform it. They want to understand how it became the way it is because evidence indicates that Mars, um, millions of years um, ago, actually had an atmosphere similar to Earth. So you say that there might be evidence that supports that Mars have uh, supported a habitable environment. Yeah, so um, we, we know that um, water can actually exist on Mars, though it's ice, um, So because Mars is actually extremely cold right now. Um, there's been evidence of channels on Mars' surface, which is an indication of running water. Furthermore, um, NASA missions, such as MAVEN, have also revealed that Mars' atmosphere was stripped away by the solar wind. Oh, so there has been change in the composition of the atmosphere in Mars. Yeah, um, it's over completely the carbon dioxide. And talking about Mars, well, connected to what you've been telling me, you've experienced your first rocket launch, actually, when you were younger. So that was also a mission related to exploring that side of Mars? That's true. So um, the mission that you're talking about is the Curiosity rover, mm -hmm. which is currently the only active rover on Mars. And... Um, Curiosity launched all the way back in 2011, and it's still operating right now. It's, um, I believe, I believe it's going to turn eight years old very soon. Okay. So it's still coming very strong. Um, that, that November, um, in 2011, um, I headed down with some family and friends to, um, Orlando, Florida. Uh, we were mostly planning to just explore the Disney parks, but... <laughs> I had that gut feeling of going there, yeah. <laughs> so when we first realized that we were um, going, we were our visit actually coincided with the rocket launch. We decided to actually see it. I mean, like at this point in life, I was really, um, I guess, I was really obsessed with rockets. Um, the rockets are the vehicle by which we can get to these otherworldly destinations, and they've fascinated me since. Um, elementary school. So mm -hmm. in my spare time, I would just draw hypothetical designs of rockets, rocket engines and stuff. Um, I've been really interested in the propulsion um, aspect of rockets. It's something that's really like full of technological marvels. And mm -hmm. to be able to see the rocket um, la launching, um, <sighs> there was a lot of excitement. So we all woke up around 4 a.m., wow. um, got breakfast out of McDonald's, and drove the hour and a half over to Camp Canaveral, which is the primary eastern seaport, uh, I'm eastern spaceport, I'm sorry, in the United States. And so after that, there was a lot of waiting. We all had to wait about um, at a site of about four miles away from the launch pad itself because the rocket is actually very, very loud once it launches. And when it first launched, I had this video camera in hand taping the whole experience we were all shouting um the countdown my friends and i were all going like five four three two one and when the rocket finally launched we could see a brilliant plume of orange exhaust just trailing behind it and a smoke trail that lasted for miles and when the sound of the rocket reached us it was like a huge crackle it was extremely loud i thought my eardrums were gonna pop it was truly a surreal experience Wow. And pretty soon, um, the rocket disappeared into the upper atmosphere. And that was the last we saw of it. And that must have been like an out-of-the-world experience. 
it was truly inspiring. I think that's what really got me interested in, like, um, really got me involved and interested in space exploration. And that's something that truly, like, lit off a spark inside my head. That just so applies what you're saying, because I think when we are, like, younger, one of the most admirable qualities of a child is having this intricately curious mind and in connection with the rocket launch curiosity in itself opens doors mentally and just spurs imagination like it did in in your case as well that you become fascinated with astronomy and and the world outside of our planet it is just encouraging to hear that and people have long imagined worlds that might orbit exoplanets and approximately 30 years ago, one was discovered and then more. However, research in that particular field still has its own challenges. So what was the reaction when you received when the plan was clear, searching for these planets outside of our solar system? Well, yeah. So um, there are actually multiple ways by which we can discover exoplanets. Each of them um, has their own unique challenges. Um, but one thing that's in common is that it's still extremely hard to find exoplanets, at, even with 21st century technology. Um, main part of that is because they're so far away, and exoplanets are not like asteroids, um, which are really common in our solar system. Around uh, At least two asteroids are discovered per day on average. Wow. That's not the case for exoplanets. So even 30 years later, we still know of only approximately 3,000 exoplanets in total. And that makes research even more difficult, but you are not afraid to dive into that field. That's true. So the method that I'm working with is actually um, called Doppler spectroscopy, which is also known as the radial velocity method. And what it is is that it's an it's, it's a fairly indirect method of searching for exoplanets. How it works is that it is based on Newton's universal law of gravitation, which is a concept that I'm sure we've all experienced through physics courses. Mm-hmm. And what Newton's universal law of gravitation states that um, if, an ob- if there's an object orbiting around a star, then neither of those objects will, will remain stationary relative to the center of mass. So because of the gravitational tug between the planet and the star, the star is actually going to wobble. It's going to move around in its orbit. It's going to circle around the center of mass. And what that appears to the observer is that the star looks like it's moving back and forth. So how do we measure this wobble? Well, if we look at the star's spectra, then the spectral lines will actually shift back and forth because the brightness of the star is increasing and decreasing periodically. So in my research, I actually look for this um, shifting of the spectral lines, which indicates that the star is moving. And that real that allowed me to identify all sorts of exoplanets. So if it's moving to one spectra, is it the red and the blue part of the spectra you can identify if it's moving closer or how does it work? That's exactly right. So um, if we look at if we look at the spectra of the stars, then the spectral lines will be shifting towards shifting between the red and blue. Um, so the way how this works is uh, we can actually apply the Doppler effect, hence the name Doppler spectroscopy, to the light because the light experiences wave-like properties. And so what's going to happen is that um, as the star is moving towards the observer, the apparent frequency of the light increases, so the spectral lines will blue shift. They move towards the blue end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the opposite is also true. So as the star is moving away from the observer, uh, the spectral lines will shift towards the red end of the spectrum. Uh, they redshift because the apparent frequency of the light coming from the star is decreasing. 
I see. That's more understandable. And I also um, identify that you explain complex concepts using vivid and comprehensible imagery. So how are the game Tug of War and Merry-Go-Round related to your project? Right. So uh, obviously <laughs> looking at things from an astronomical perspective is really complicated. But Tug and War and Merry-Go-Round were some of the were some of the most common games I played as an elementary schooler. And so, and these are metaphors that perfectly explain how these planets are interacting with their parent stars. So, Tug of War is um, a metaphor for the gravitational tug between the star and the planet. Um, contrary to what many might think, it's not just the more massive star tugging on the planet. The planet is actually exerting an equal and opposite force on the star as well by Newton's universe, by Newton's uh, third law of motion. Actually, so since both both objects are pulling or I guess pushing on each other with um, forces of the same magnitude but opposite directions. That's basically what's happening in tug of war, right? Um, as well, you have two teams, each pulling in the opposite direction, and trying to see which team could pull with more force. The merry-go-round, on the other hand, um, refers to the motion of the star and the planet. So, um, if we take the game of tug of war on top of a merry-go-round, um, which is which is c- going to be constantly spinning we can actually see how the planet is going to be interacting with the star. So as the planet moves around in its orbit, the star is actually going to be wobbling in a circular path around the center of mass as well. And so on on the Marigo, when we still have the two people tugging on each other, we actually see that they're going to rotate around each other and the center of mass as well. So it's just like, I guess, um, a more a more Earth-like way of visualizing what actually happens in solar systems away um, elsewhere in the universe. That's just awesome. I really love those metaphors, and they just explain the concepts uh, really vividly and in a comprehensible manner. Before diving into your findings, uh, we got to look at the precursor because you started a graduate-level research at the University of Florida. So before that time, what were the skills you acquired that helped you to, to continue that work? Well, um, one of the first like, most important skills, I would say, is communication. And communication, um, I can't reiterate this more, is absolutely key to achieving um, significant results in your research. Because um, good research, high-quality research, cannot come without a collaborative effort. You want to be able to um, effectively collaborate with other people in order to get the in order to get the most um, most amount of work done. And that would, I guess, that would be one of the most important soft skills. Obviously, um, from my personal perspective, I was actually a major introvert growing up. So in elementary school and in middle school, to a fair extent, I was the quietest kid in the classroom. Slowly grew older, I realized that being able to um, communicate your ideas is going to be crucial in the long run. Um, I gradually um, developed the skills needed to um, public speaking as well, as well as communication skills. And that played a major role in my collaboration with my current mentor, as well as several other PhD-level students working at the University of Florida. It just really shows how you can learn these skills and apply in real-life situations, because first glance, I would have thought that you're an extrovert due to those advanced skills that you've already acquired by now. That's true. And um, I guess communication is still the more most important skill, more so than computer science or maybe even astronomy to an extent. In fact, I have a really funny story. One of my um, most interesting experiences prior to my research and involving like 
work skills came when I was trying out for a uh, science Olympiad in my freshman year. Now, obviously, I signed up to take the um, take the astronomy test, even though there are many of them available. And at my school, science Olympiad is one of these things where you actually have to try out to get in. If you're not good enough, they just kick you straight off. Oh. Well, um, here, take a guess to see how many questions I got right on the astronomy test. Out of how many? 50. 50. How many you got right? I think you got all of them right. Nope. Uh, one question right. One question right. One question right. And that um, and that got me kicked off of the Science Olympia team. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but what it really showed me was that um, there's a lot more to astronomy that I, that I didn't know of. And there's a lot more things that people want to discover in order to explain the mysteries of our universe. So for the remainder of my freshman year, I really dug myself into learning as much as I could about concepts in astronomy and the history, basically. Um, and, su- and as such, at the end of freshman year, I was really prepared when I began my current research. It's just really interesting to hear because that didn't discourage you, but motivated you was, to dig deeper. Yeah. Um, I've been involved in astronomy research for the past three years now, and I can't believe like one of the funniest things I, I like I find it really funny at this point is that I got kicked off of um, the Science Olympiad for failing the astronomy test. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, I think we know like stories of one of the most successful people that at first try they did not succeed but what made them successful is that they didn't stop at that point but moved forward and that was real successes I think there is a quote from Churchill too that success is like a series of failures but that just keeps you moving forward yeah yeah and I actually can't agree with that statement more uh personally um that has also affected me on a like a like a really personal level uh this past year my junior year of high school i've actually experienced a lot of blowback uh, regarding my research i've had um i've definitely had a lot of people pressing doubt in like expressing doubt in my work and they a lot of them didn't really believe that a high schooler could accomplish so much mm-hmm. uh, furthermore like in terms of the research itself a lot of the a lot of like the parts what i don't discuss there during my presentations is actually how much frustration actually went in to develop these technologies because a large portion of my research relies on innovation and novelty um for example the circumbinary planet i discovered which is the planet like tatooine orbiting around two stars is the first detected using a new method i really needed to be able to think of new ideas and when these ideas constantly failed it was really frustrating to see them especially since I dedicated so much of my time to working on them, but now that I look back, each of these failures really helped me improve my models. They helped me um, refine my research direction and really was beneficial to me in the long run. And you did not give up your passion for, well, reaching for the stars, no matter what others thought or what setbacks you faced. That's true. And I what, what, I believe like the outlier of the universe is something that really kept me going. And you've had some novel findings at the end. Can you share about those? Sure. So the first two words of my research title are Tatooine Found. And if you're a Star Wars fan, I'm sure you'll be able to relate to that a lot. Luke Skywalker. So, um, <laughs> So, in my research, I was able to discover a circumbinary planet, which is, as I previously mentioned, orbiting a planet orbiting around the very center, or center of mass, of two stars. 
So, um, from Tatooine, um, we can actually see that the planet is orbiting around two suns. When Luke Skywalker ventures out onto the surface, he actually sees two suns in the sky. That's the binary sunset scene, and that's arguably the most iconic scene from the original Star Wars film. So, in my research, um, this circumbinary planet is actually extremely rare in the universe. Because as of right now, only 24 have been discovered thus far. You're one of those who had that major breakthrough in your research in regards to that field. That's right. And the uh, field of circumbinary planets in particular is really interesting. Because when the first Star Wars movie came out in 1997, people, um, 1977, I'm sorry, people actually did not uh, know if these planets could exist or not. Every of such a planet did not occur until 60 years later in 1993. It moved from science fiction to actually developing scientific facts. Having it written down that is true and it's not just imagination. That's exactly right. And I know that your research is a milestone in discovering worlds out in the universe. So since it's in the Goldilocks zone, could it, well, theoretically sustain human life? Well, no, unfortunately. Um, this planet is a giant planet, which is kind of like Jupiter. It consists of a rocky core surrounded by a large gaseous envelope. I should also mention that this is the first ever circumbinary planet detected using Doppler spectroscopy. So um, this has really been a major breakthrough, but... Um, uh, going back to your question, if the planet actually has moons, uh, w we know that the gas giants in our um, solar system, such as Jupiter and Saturn, they have large amounts of terrestrial moons, which is largely due to their chaotic formation process. And um, I believe that this planet, because it's so similar to Jupiter, it's only about three times the mass of it it could actually sustain a lot of these terrestrial moons orbiting around them. And although the planet is not in the habitable zone, these moons are going to be um, located within the habitable zones as well. And so since they're experiencing um, a temperature on their surfaces, which is, um, I guess, warm or cold enough for liquid water to exist, these moons could potentially harbor life. And that's something, that's an extremely interesting prospect that I'd really love to investigate in the future. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Now, of course, we're undoubtedly at the dawn of a new era in space exploration, and you belong to those yes. outstanding scientists who make a crucial effort to contribute to that. And now I'm more than convinced why NASA chose you for the top award. Thank you. Yeah, so um, because this is the first ever circumbinary planet detected using Doppler spectroscopy, um, I really had to work with a lot of new and emerging technologies in this field. And so part of what, what my research consists of is actually developing a novel confirmation procedure to actually prove that this planet is real. And so in exoplanet confirmation, uh, the main goal is to eliminate all potential factors that could have caused a planetary-like signal to appear in the data. So my method is extremely unique in that it involves the creation of synthetic stellar spectra, so um, develop, I developed software that allows for synthetic stellar spectra to actually be created. So what that means is if you give it the per, if you give the computer the parameters of a particular stellar system, it will spit out the spectra corresponding to that system that we observe. And so what I was able to do with this here is to prove um, is to fully prove that. Uh, the planet, the signal of the circumbinary planet could not have been caused by any other factors, thus proving that it is real. 
And from this point, um, this is actually the first time that astronomers have created synthetic spectra um, for applications in my field of astronomy. That is truly impressive. Congratulations again. Yeah, and speaking of your innovations, um, there is an effort to find places outside our planet. Uh, why do you think humans must become an interplanetary species? That's a very good question. Um, according to a recent United Nations report, um, if humans are to continue their existing activities throughout 2030, then the Earth's ecosystem will experience irreversible damage. And the loss in diversity system will be one out of many factors that could influence humanity's potential extinction in the future. And that's something that's incredibly worrying, especially in this day and era where not everybody is fully believing in the power of science. We are already seeing the effects of this, most notably climate change. We see that extreme weather is plaguing remote areas. For example, in my country, the Midwest is currently experiencing severe floods. Um, a lot of people are dying and tornadoes are also causing major devastation to the area. These extreme weather patterns are a direct result of the damage that humans have been inflicting on the environment. And there really comes a point where Earth will most likely not be able to sustain human activity in the future. It, it, will, it will definitely reach a breaking point where um, efforts to save the world will become futile, where it will just become irreversible. Mm -hmm. And the depletion of resources natural resources is also a concerning factor. As such, I believe that in order for humankind to continue our existence into the future, then we must become an interplanetary species. And there's no better time to begin thinking about the potential implications. Because even though Earth's future is still very much uncertain at this point, we can do a lot to slow down the effects of global warming and climate change. We must be looking into the future to see where else could we possibly exist in the future. Where can we possibly see ourselves maybe hundreds or maybe even thousands of years into the future? Hmm. Nature is definitely sending us these warning signs. It's definitely so crucial to raise awareness and to invest in research that provides alternate solutions to this problem. That's true. You are solving the problems of today and tomorrow as well to, to care for humanity. Speaking of the future, what are the future steps in your project? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, so for my current research, I'm going to continue investigating this planet, obviously, uh, because it's only one out of 24 known and the first detected using Doppler spectroscopy. There are many interesting implications, and what I'm doing right now is actually collecting follow-up observations of this planet to get a more clearer picture of what's actually going on in this solar system that's really far away in the universe. Um, that's going to be the f yeah. That's going to be the first major part. The second major part is that I'm currently in the process of forming a startup that's actually going to tie into um, my research in the future as well as uh, my continued interest in space exploration. The first part of what we're going to do is going to be education outreach because as of right now, um, there are not a lot of people working in STEM or astronomy for that matter, and there's been a severe lack of underrepresented minorities, and that's something that I really want to be able to change in this field. Um, so what I'm going to be able to do is, um, well, actually, um, when I was little, I, my parents would take me to the science museum, and, um, and I would watch a lot of those scientific demonstrations, like Vinegar Volcano, and those things 
um, in the Science Museum really captivated my curiosity throughout elementary school. And I guess that's what really got me interested into scientific research. Um, I really wanted to be able to find out the the answers to the why questions. Why do things in nature occur this way? Mm-hmm. And what I want to be doing in the future is to become the same force for um, children who are um, interested in science as well. I want to be um, I want to be able to be the catalyst, their curiosity, their passion for science. So what I'll be um, doing is that um, actually at school right now, I actually run the Aerospace Engineering Club. So what we do is we build, we design, build, test, and fly our own rockets, which are made from scratch. Uh, we experiment with multiple different propellant combinations, for example. And as like somebody who's really interested in propulsion, that's my favorite part. Um, our propellant combinations are very similar to what's used on NASA's space shuttle boosters, actually. And uh, although we've had numerous setbacks, um, we've actually destroyed a lot of fume hoods in my school's chemistry lab, which the administration was not happy about. Um, we've made we've made significant progress, and conducting these rocket demonstrations, this is actually going to be something a lot of kids will never experience in their lives. And I feel like it's imperative that we begin to get students to be interested in considering careers in STEM, because if we're not working together, if we don't have a lot of people committed to um, science and technology, we would not be able to change the world. That is so true. Like you are investing right now in the future generation and you are, well, we can basically say that you're planting the stem seeds in their lives that will um, <laughs> grow and uh, produce results because I mean, I can imagine that they are having fun while building rockets in your school. That must be just really awesome for them. Oh yeah, I'm really blessed to be able to have this opportunity and it's something I enjoy doing a lot. Yes, I can imagine. And uh, just out of curiosity, what materials do you employ when you build these rockets? So right now, um, for like the body and for the for the motors, we're actually employing just aluminum to keep things simple. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're doing for the fuel, on the other hand, the fuel is primarily um, composed of HTPB, which is the primary fuel component in the space shuttle solid rocket boosters. So all of our rockets are solid fueled um, to in order to keep things simple. But we're definitely, um, if we have the time and resources, we definitely um, love to invest some time and some resources in creating hypothetical liquid or maybe even aerospike engine designs. That's just fascinating. It's really great to hear about it that you to reach out in those ways as well. And ISAF is also a hotspot for grand encounters. I'm really interested to hear you sharing about the time when someone visited your booth who won the award. I think some people might have heard about it, the so-called Nobel Prize. Yeah. So what was it like? Surreal. That's one word um, to describe it. Um, what I was so when I was um, at my booth for media interviews, um, that was the morning of the Tuesday ISF, I believe. Um, I was just finishing up an interview when I spotted some someone walking down my aisle, <laughs> and it turns out um, the guy was Dr. Martin Chelfie, who won the two thousand eight Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his research in fluorescent proteins. And to be able to see such a legend, someone who has made a great name out of himself on the 
global stage was just truly inspiring. So he had a name tag that read Nobel Laureate, and he had a camera crew following him around. So when he came over, I was just speechless for like the first couple of seconds. Um, what I was able to do was talk to him for more than half an hour, actually, on research. I was able to explain to him about how I got the idea, my research inspirations, um, my results, and the implications for humanity's future. And I must say, Dr. Chelsea, um, if you get this guy as a judge, he should be prepared. He grilled me a lot about like, the basic physics and pr uh, physical principles behind my research. And it just shows that um, he's really dedicated to his work. He's really dedicated to advancing science in the young generation. It was such a pleasure to be able to talk to somebody who's really famous and such a celebrity in all of STEM. I can imagine. This has been such a memorable experience. It's it's interesting that you mentioned it. So he started at the fundamentals to test your knowledge. But since you mentioned that you talked to each other for more than a half an hour, that just shows that he was really impressed by your knowledge. And it's a great conversation. That's awesome. Not only that, he's also a really interesting dude. So his Wikipedia page states that um, he was... Um, he was sleeping during the Nobel Prize ceremony, and then when he woke up, he decided to check which um, um, who actually won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And in like a moment of surprise, he discovered that he was the recipient. And that was actually very similar to the moment I had at um, ISEF when they announced my name for um, NASA. I was actually sleeping during that moment. And my my friend actually shook me awake, and he was like, yo, yo, bro, you got to go up there. I was like, what? And then I realized that. Oh, man. Waking up never has been that amazing, right? Yeah. Like, um, I've been like, just going to sleep really late at ISIS because the activities are so amazing. For example, the previous night before the special award ceremony, I was... Um, I, par I partied really hard for four hours at the student mixer, and um, this is a little tangent, but I was in the middle for the whole time getting jostled around. It was basically a mosh pit. Um, people were, like, pushing each other and just, like, jumping up and down, not even dancing. It was... Interest, it was such an interesting, interesting experience. I felt like I had a concussion after. <laughs> I had so many bruises on my body. And people who, um, people who were observing from a distance, they thought they saw a steam rising out from the center. And somebody, uh, because we're all science nerds, actually took, an ex um, took a device to measure the acceleration of the floor and measure that the floor was accelerating um, with a magnitude of 0.2 meters per second squared, which meant that if we were if we partied just a little bit harder, we may have caused structural damage to, to the floor of that of that hall. Wow, <laughs> that is partying crazy nerd style for sure. I actually experienced the bump on the dance floor. It's post workout feeling as well because we were squatting a lot. Oh yeah, like um at. The Towards like the end of the dance, I started getting severe muscle cramps, which is whenever I stopped moving, I would just get cramps. So that just forced me to like dance even harder just to like make sure I wasn't like cramping up. Like at the end of the thing, I literally fell down because like I couldn't control my I, I literally felt like I couldn't control my leg muscles anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. That was just a massive party. You've it been was. also asked from stage um, on one of the days to show up your dance move that is now officially part of world history 
Oh, no. Yeah, so that was during the opening ceremony, and the um, the MC she was talking about the robot dance, and all of a sudden, I was like, wait, I know that dance. So I, I was like, hey, I can do it. And then when I stood up, I spontaneously forgot how to do it, so I just did I just did um, the Backpack Kid, but it's the dance that the Backpacking Kid made popular. Oh, okay. Well, you showed your own version of the Rava dance. You brought innovation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, also, like, um, for the for the award ceremony, I was like, everybody's just fucking up. We gotta make this a little more interesting, so... I just did um, a couple of Fortnite dance moves, even though I've never played that game. <laughs> I guess, like, and the photographer captured those moments where um, I just look, I just look pretty bad. Let's just say that. So you can find these photos in the Flickr album of um, Ice of 2019. You are now exposed. <laughs> did I kind you... of exposed myself. <laughs> did you dab? <laughs> Unintentional. Did you dab? Yeah, I did. Right in front of the camera, but I'm pretty sure they cut it out of the highlight video, which is such a shame. Yeah, um, I'm sorry I couldn't see that. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, moving forwards, uh, I know that you've participated not only at ICEF, but also at the TEDx event hosted in Jacksonville, which is like one of the oldest and most yeah. attended TEDx events in the world. And you were one of the... That's true. 12 selected presenters at the event. It's just so mainstream to say, but it still applies like communication is key. What would be your tips on how to give a bomb presentation? That's a very good question. So one of my personal, um, one of my personal tactics, which is also something that my research mentor um, instilled in me, was that you want to make a presentation that's about telling a story. Too many people today, especially in STEM, their presentations are just listing facts, but rarely do they ever discuss how they actually came across these ideas and how they're going to implement them in the future. So for uh, personally, if I was to do a talk on my research, I would start off with an introduction on how my research, on um, how I came to be in this position, why I am standing on the stage today. I would, um, for a general audience, I would really refrain from talking about the technicalities so you could talk a lot about um how your computer algorithms work as well as like the physics but that's going to bore a lot of people instead try to use metaphors to really weave them into the story like for example i have the tug of war and the merry-go-round um, these are really crucial to keeping the audience um engaged and last but not least i want to um I would just say that the last part of your presentation should not be just something that goes like in conclusion. That's a big no-no if you're trying to do a professional type presentation. Um, what you want to do is to be able to continue your narrative. You want to continue talking about how your um, research findings are going to lead to more amazing discoveries in the future and what these discoveries can mean for humanity as a whole. It can potentially serve as like a call of action, I would assume. Um, so, like, a call of action to more people being engaged in these topics, and that's something that could really get the audience on their feet. Mm. Those are just some helpful tips. So, we got to know that in conclusion is a major red flag in giving a presentation. Nope. And that, yeah, what you just mentioned, that how you started and how you ended is just so vital because people, like, remember the beginning and the end mostly. So, you got to make the impression. That's true. Yeah. You really want to. You really want to be able to make a positive impression. It, you don't want an experience to just be forgettable. 
just be um you want it to you want to end on a note that leaves the audience thinking and that's just ties back to getting the audience engaged you want them to be able to think instead of just listing facts they're not going to be doing any thinking but if you're telling your research story then that gets their brains working Yes, and I could tell from the video, which is, by the way, uh, available online, so anyone is listening, go click on that. You don't want to miss that out. But I can clearly tell uh, that the audience genuinely enjoyed your presentation, so you, you made that job perfectly. Thank you. It was really difficult. I spent a lot of time preparing uh, my talk. Uh, I actually was announced um, as a speaker in late June last year, but I didn't um, and I've, I was working on um, the entire presentation, logistics, every, everything, ever, um, ever since. Since I've never spoken in front of such a, such a large audience before. And since, um, as I previously mentioned, I was a huge introvert. I hated, I just hated speaking up and like talking to large groups of people. Whenever I had to give a talk to maybe even just a few people, I would, I would get extremely nervous and start shivering. So this um, represented a major departure it, I guess, even represented character growth in some sense. So it was really um, amazing to be able to look back and look at this accomplishment. And needless to say, it's something that I've, I'm really proud of personally. It just proves that self-growth is available and depends on you because we've got the potential, but you, you work towards cultivating it and, and truly applying it. <laughs> Uh, well, at a TEDx event, like not that many people can tell them about themselves, which is just awesome. And you were also an invited panelist at the World Science Festival, where you reached out to young students highlighting science and technology. So what is a lesson yep. or a message that you want to pass on to the next generation? Um, I actually have a couple of messages, and this actually really stems into the work I'm doing as part of my startup, just empowering young students to, be to become um, intellectually engaged in science and technology. Um, the first, obviously most generic, I would say is don't be afraid of failure. As somebody who has experienced countless setbacks, I can't even remember all of them off my head throughout this research journey, um, it's really um, a major thing to be able to persevere and always put your passion first. Nobody, because your passion is somebody, is one of the very few things that nobody is able to steal or take away from you. And that should be your main driving force in um, your intellectual journey. Um, it should be the it should be driving your curiosity to understanding how the world works. Um, that really just ties up into my second point, which is to just let any um, light bulb moments go away. Because, like for me personally, getting into my research um, was perfectly just a series of light bulb moments that I had to take advantage of. And for example, this detection of the circumbinary planet, I was looking at data like more closely, I would have completely missed this signal. Um, the planet signal was completely suppressed by the two stars, but I saw an anomaly and I asked the question of why was it there? Why was it there? And what could it possibly represent? And that's how I got um, and that's how I was able to achieve such um, a breakthrough finding. Those are uh, pretty helpful because a lot of times we just hear the answers to the question what or how, but why actually reveals pattern that could be observed while you're thinking outside of the box and putting those pixel pieces together. 
From exoplanets, we are moving back to Earth a bit, but we have not reached ground level yet because you started an aviation news site. So what inspired you to launch Flight Level 360? Yeah, so um, I've been an aviation enthusiast as well as um, a space exploration nerd. <laughs> um, so what I do t- a lot in my free time is that um, I'm currently in the process of studying for my student pilot's license. It's a long journey, and it's going to take a lot of my time, but I'm slowly getting there. Um, a part of that is that um, I actually really enjoy flight simulators because these can be really realistic. And basically flying an aircraft is something that's both a mental and physical exercise. It requires a lot of hand-eye coordination, excellent communication skills, as well as um, a desire to do like what nobody's ever done before, I guess, in some sense. Because each flight is unique. Each flight is where you, um, a, di- a different adventure. And going on adventures is obviously something that drives a lot of us, including myself, to just go above and beyond. So for Flight Level 360, um, I'm mostly focused on commercial aviation news as well as trip reports of flights that I've taken myself. It's mostly intended as a resource to help um, new travelers make the most out of their airline experience. Um, So unfortunately, I haven't been able to spend as much time on Flight Level 360 recently as I'm as I would have liked because of my current research. Nevertheless, it's something that has really kept me busy since my sophomore year of high school, which is when I first launched it. So currently I'm the editor, um, I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of uh, the online magazine. And it's really given me a community, um, an ability to connect with other people who are really experienced in this field. For example, um, Fly Level 360 has allowed me to connect with many um, high-ranking executives at um, airlines in particular, as far away as Indonesia's Lion Air, it's really been a way for me to expand my horizons and see things I otherwise would not have the ability to see. Wow, so you cover the globe as well. Yeah. That I was just browsing the website because I was interested, and I noticed that part of your visits were on going to numerous colleges. So have you decided which one you're going to attend or you have different options? What's the case now? That's a very good question. I don't know. (laughs) Um, There are honestly just so many amazing um, universities, so many amazing institutions in the United States that I've said it's so hard to be able to pick a favorite at the moment because all of them offer something, something unique compared to others. But most importantly, all of them offer an environment where I'm able to expand intellectually and really be able to further my interest in space exploration and aviation. So even though I'm a junior right now, I'm still very much undecided. College admissions um, are coming soon. But I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about just attending college, no matter what college, just any college. Uh, because I feel like they would all be, um, it would be an amazing experience to meet many new people and be able to continue my research interests from uh, this point on. Yes, and connect with people who are like-minded and with whom you yeah. can work together with. Then you are not going to stick to Potato University, as I saw in your Instagram bio. Nope. <laughs> nope, not at all. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of background behind University of Potato was that I was browsing translation fails because um, that's something that I um, I really love like doing to waste my time. Um, and I came across a menu from Japan that read University of Potato Ice Cream. 
So oh. that was actually a really bad translation of taro, which is um, which is a root vegetable that's used a lot in East Asian cuisine. So the Japanese word for um, taro is daikakuimo, which kind of translates to university potato. So... <laughs> Oh, I didn't know yeah. the background behind it. I thought it was made up, but it's even more funny that <laughs> it was it a translation was, um, fail. It was a major translation error. Oh, that's just really funny. I know that mass times acceleration is with you since you founded the F equals M times <laughs> A Physics Olympiad Club. So, what are some of the hardest types of exercises you cover there? Or should I say, force times mass equals acceleration, which was strangely on one of the posters that was on display at Chase Field during the baseball game. Not sure if you noticed that or not, but it was incredibly funny. Oh, I, I haven't even noticed. Yeah, it was um the science of space, uh, the science of sports. I'm sorry, um that was like one of the major exhibits that um ISF put up during the baseball game. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks playing the Pittsburgh Pirates, and my friend and I found that error on the poster, and we could not stop laughing. Considering oh. this is like a science research exhibition, that was. I haven't noticed that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, that was really funny. Going back to the F equals M A club, um, it's just something that I started um as a little side project at school. Um, what it is is. Uh, we want to be able to get students interested and passionate about physics, because physics is um, considered to be one of the hardest uh, subjects at my school and for any school for that matter. It's something that a lot of people don't like because simply of how challenging it is. But I feel that despite all the challenges, physics is actually beautiful because it contains some of the answers to why the world works the way it does. And I want I want people to be able to see like the beauty in physics. Um, in order to be able to see a principle, physics is the mathematical language of the universe, and when we understand it, we truly have an, a deep、um, understanding of how the world works, how the universe formed, and what the future of the universe is. And it also opens up the doors to other sciences, so it lays the fundamentals. That's why it's so crucial that you're invested in that field. That's true, and another beauty of physics is simply how wide it is.、Um, like you can, you can do,、um, you can investigate things that are really, really small, like quantum mechanics, or you can go investigate things that are really, really big, like what I'm doing in astronomy.、Um, people in physics like usually don't under. It's hard for them to understand each other. Like even for astronomy, I don't understand a lot of、um, what other people are doing in astronomy as well. And such a large field. Um, it's provided the answers to some of humanity's most pressing questions throughout history, and I'm certain that it will continue to do the same throughout the future. That's just an amazing endeavor. Moving from physics, you are not only a pro athlete but an athlete too. So why did you choose cross country and track? <laughs> well,、um, staying fit, like personal fitness and working out, way for stress relieving. So I do long distance. Uh, track and cross country,、um, because long distance running is actually something that requires a lot of focus and endurance. And although it's very difficult, it's been a great way to like really build up personal fit. 
this and be able to pursue other um, physically demanding activities. Um, so I really enjoy like competing with other athletes from across the city and state. And it's just been like an amazing thing to see how much I've grown as an athlete. But rather, um, it's uh, it's very similar to racquetball, actually. It's usually two people um, hitting a ball against a wall. And while that might sound simple, squash is actually a very competent sport. Really fast movement and precise hand-eye coordination, which I believe are skills that are really, really important as well. Mm, for sure. It's really interesting that you brought up um, squash because I've always thought of it as being something dangerous because I had a fear of the ball hitting my face, but that's not the case in your situation. That actually happens more common than you'd expect. I've gotten numerous black eyes from the ball just like You are putting yourself at risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's, it's something that I enjoy a lot. So I'm willing, I'm willing to take risks. Yeah, that's great to hear. Speaking of running, um, I've recently come across the word wonderful, an adjective to describe how you feel the minute after you finish your run. So how would you describe your feeling of, I don't know, run darefulness? Crossing the finish line, I would, um, I would first experience a moment of relief and that finally the race is over. Since so for cross country, we're running for multiple kilometers on it. You start counting down the kilometers until like, you reach the finish line. After that, you get, like, a huge moment of pain, I guess, from, like, because um, your legs suddenly stop moving, you're no longer breathing as, as much, and it takes quite a while to recover from that. After a race, I get extremely, like, exhausted, so I have to, like, lie down for a while. Um, but usually, um, I don't do that. Usually, I just go up for another jog, a cool-down jog, just to keep building up the fitness and make sure like, I'm putting too much stress on my heart. But really, it's like a really, um, I guess, inexplicable experience when the uh, when you finally cross the finish line. It's almost akin to giving your presentation at ISEF to a judge who is really picky and asking a lot of questions. And finally um, being finished and the judge being really satisfied. It's really interesting that you brought up that connecting link between the two experiences because ISEF is also, well, a race for one day and, and you gotta use all of your stamina to, to cross that finish line. Yeah, that's true. I would describe it more as a limitation because um, the main, like when I was going to ISEF this year, my main goal was not, um, I didn't expect to win anything, but rather... Um, my only goal was to meet more people compared to last year. And I must say, I achieved that goal. So I, I just went around meeting people, meeting as many people as possible. And that honestly was the highlight of this year's ISEF. For sure, getting to know others. Just so many inspiring people. I definitely agree. And I know as well that you live in New York City. And hence yeah. its immense size and vibrant diversity. I know there are a bunch of places to visit, but what activities would be on your top to-do NYC list? One of like the main points that I want to say if you're visiting your city is that there's honestly so much to um, so much food to try. There's honestly so many amazing cuisines available. We have a big food truck culture, for example, and we also have a lot of food festivals around around the city at times of the year. So if you're in New York City, definitely check these places out. Um, I'd, uh, I'd love to offer some recommendations, but there are so many amazing places. I just can't like decide on which one. So you can like, try as many different dishes as possible. Definitely take advantage of our subway. It's a little bit dirty, but it gets you to, it gets you to the destination. Um, other than that, I would recommend checking out some um, museums in the area. 
my personal favorite is the American Museum of Natural History. And that offers such a diverse um, amount of exhibits. Um, for example, you can learn about you can learn about not only um, an- the history of animals and plants on Earth, but also about the universe as well. They've got some of my favorite astronomy-related exhibits. Mm, so you've got the cheat meals and the culture as well. Oh yeah, the 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 one thing I appreciate about New York City is that it has just a little bit of everything. So if you're um, it doesn't matter like what kind of person you are, if you're like a museum person or if you're more adventurous. New York City's got that. And talking about food, 你最喜欢的中国菜是什么？哇，中文说的很好。啊，谢谢。So impressive. Um, so my favorite. The question was, what was your favorite Chinese dish? Yes. And um, a personal favorite is uh, bozhou fan. Bozhou fan is um is Cantonese. Uh, my Cantonese is really bad. Uh, for um, a clay pot rice dish, and what it is is you have a clay pot, and then you put a lot of rice in it, and then you heat it up such that um, the the bottom of the rice will actually start get um, get to be crispy, and that's like a crunch that like it's hard to describe. Um, you can also put a lot of stuff on top, a lot of different toppings on top of the clay pot rice, and it's just like a it's not only an easy to make dish, it's um, Fairly iconic, not only in Hong Kong but in Singapore and other Southeast Southeastern Asian nations as well.、Mm, that just sounds so tasty. You made me hungry. <laughs> so many amazing things about、um, Chinese cuisine and other Asian type Asian food, for example. It's just it's hard to decide on what you really like the most, you know, because there's so many new things to just try. Yes, there is absolutely a great variety. And to close up, that's the question I ask every guest: What does science mean to you? <laughs> that's a difficult question, but、um, and it varies for everybody, I'm sure. But for me, science represents the power by which we can change the world. So one of my main dreams from、um, when I was little was to change the world for the better in some way or form. I never realized like how to do that, though.、So、I never、um, realized that I actually had power to change the world until very recently,、um, when I found that like my research could actually have implications for the rest of humanity, as I was able to show that the method I use, Doppler spectroscopy, is、um, going to be、um, an extremely capable method for discovering Earth-like planets、um, when its precision is improved. So、um, what that means is, I want to be able to save all of humanity from the devastating effects of climate change. For example, I want to be able to find ourselves a second home elsewhere in the universe. And while I might not,、um, I might not live,、uh, I might not be alive by the time this happens. I want to see human. I want to see humans become an interplanetary species because that, I believe, is the only way by which we can continue our existence into the future. And this is something I'm going to be. 
dedicating the rest of my life towards. I'm sure that the vision you've just shared with the listeners will inspire so many who are communicating science and making a contribution to that change and working on a cause that will truly revolutionize science and will have many beneficial effects on humanity as a whole. I think you clearly impressed the judges as ISAF. Congratulations on your achievement again. And um, I was just so glad to have you here in the podcast. And thank you for sharing it all. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I really want to be able to see um, what really holds for the future. Because um, with current science and technology advances, there's uh, there's sure to be a lot of amazing things to come out. So I really can't wait to see what the future holds. Yes, I think that the future holds many amazing things for you as well. Thank you again for joining us. And um, those who are listening, the podcast is available on SoundCloud. Make sure to tune in to the next episode as well. And thank you for listening.